Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and the producer of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students from the course on Refugees and Forced Migration here at the LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the lived experiences of refugees themselves. I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Jennifer Elmsley and I'm a student at the LSE studying for a Master's in Gender and Development. I'm sitting here today with Kawe Beheshtizadeh, who is a former asylum seeker from Iranian Kurdistan and is now a solicitor representing asylum seekers in the UK. So Kawe, tell me a little bit about your background and your political activism in your home country of Iran that led you to flee the country. Sure. I was born in a small village in a border of Iran and Iraq during Iran and Iraq war. It is in Iranian Kurdistan and I went to primary school and secondary school there and then a near town where I did my high school. When I went to high school, I started to realize that there are many discrimination toward the Kurds inside Iran. For example, as a Kurd, you cannot become a president. As a Kurd, you could not be a minister. As a Kurd, you could not take a very high profile jobs within the government. We weren't allowed to read and write in Kurdish. We weren't taught at school in Kurdish language. And they raised serious questions to me why there are issues like that. And then my older brother, because of having some Kurdish book, reading some Kurdish articles, got into trouble with the Iranian authorities and they didn't allow him to start working as a teacher. So all this uh, made me to think about why there are discrimination toward the Kurds inside Iran. Bearing in mind, I was very young. I was 16, 17 years old. And then when I was 17 and a half, I decided to join the Kurdish political party, which is banned inside Iran. It's called Kurdistan Democratic Party of Iran. Their bases are inside Iraqi Kurdistan because they are not permitted to be inside Iran. So I joined them and I was very welcomed within the party because they saw lots of potential in me. And within a few years, I got promoted to be a teacher within the party, age 18 and a half. And at age 19 and 20, I translated a number of articles from Farsi into Kurdish. I started writing articles for the party's uh, journals. I started developing within the party and learning more and more about the politics, about the situation inside Iran, about the situation of the Kurds. So uh, I, I really enjoyed being within the party. Uh, I got more mature. I had better understanding of life. Before Iraq war in 2002, in 2003, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan and I could travel inside the territory where controlled by Saddam Hussein. And the situation over there was just terrible on, on many levels. But my priority was my safety at the time because I was absolutely certain that the US and the UK were going to invade Iraq. I, I believe that decision had been made. 
So it wasn't safe for me to stay inside Iraq. And more importantly, Iranian authorities pressurized my family. They were sending their agent to Iraqi Kurdistan, monitoring my movements, trying to get in touch with me and trying to uh, recruit me uh, for themselves. And it became really dangerous to stay inside Iraqi Kurdistan, especially I expected some sort of war. And and I went to Turkey in 2002 and claimed asylum by UNHCR. Despite the fact that my asylum claim was accepted by the UNHCR in Turkey, and my file was given to the embassy of Finland, the Turkish authority did not allow me to leave the country legally. So I waited there for about two years and I came to the conclusion that waiting in Turkey was just a complete waste of time, despite the fact I had the protection of the UNHCR in Turkey, despite the fact I was receiving monthly salary from the UNHCR as a refugee, but the Turkish authority were not just willing to allow me to leave the country lawfully. And UNHCR did all they could, uh, the head of UNHCR, uh, spoke to the head of the police in the town that I was leaving and trying to persuade them that I should be allowed to leave the country legally. My fault could be given to a third safe country, but they just refused. So I decided to leave Turkey illegally and came to the UK in 2004 in November and claimed asylum. If I say I couldn't speak a word of the English language, that is not true because I could say, hello, how are you, what's your name, and count until 100. But it wasn't good enough for any conversation with anyone. And I remember it was was waiting in a train station after claiming asylum and being provided with temporary accommodation in Dover. I was waiting for a friend at the train station to come and visit me. And I went to a lady and I said, well, I know some basic English. I could say, excuse me. She says, yes. And I say, what time is it? And she says, it is two something. And I will say, thank you. Walk away and calculate the numbers in my head. I went to the lady and I said, excuse me. And she didn't say yes. So it didn't go according to my plan. And I said, how much are you? And she (laughs) went red. So that was the level of my English. And I realized that I messed it up. So I said, no, speak English, time, time, please. And she was very helpful, but I I just couldn't understand what she was saying. Then within a year, I learned the language. I uh, started my foundation course at Glamorgan University in Wales. And I moved to London to do my degree in 2007 at London Metropolitan University, graduated in 2010, and I studied to become a barrister. I was called to the bar in 2011. I became a solicitor in 2016. In 2017, I won the Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year Award for my commitment to legal aid and representing vulnerable clients, and that is the biggest achievement of my life. I was shortlisted for Human Rights Lawyer of the Year uh, on the same year. And in 2019, I stood for Parliament on a platform of Liberal Democrat believing in liberalism, in the values that liberalism provides to people like myself and staying in the European Union, which I believe is one of the most successful um, international and continental projects, which has helped so many people on many levels. 
of course, people disagree with me and they didn't vote for me, but I am where I am today. So you talked about um, applying for asylum in the United Kingdom. What was your experience of that and how difficult was it to gain asylum in this country? I had a very strong case, so I never doubted that my asylum claim was going to be rejected simply because I was a political activist against the Iranian government. I had compelling evidence such as translating bull writing article for the party's journals, having photos with senior members of the party, having a detailed knowledge of the party providing very accurate information uh, to the UK authorities about my asylum claim. And more importantly, my asylum claim was accepted already by the UNHCR in Turkey, and that was a very powerful evidence in support of my claim. So I, I had no doubt that my claim would be successful simply because I believed that my life would be at risk inside Iran and showing that and proving that was easy. And I had detailed knowledge of asylum though simply because I claimed asylum at UNHCR. At the time, you must remember that we had a Labour government and more importantly, Tony Blair was a very brave man. One thing which was obvious to me was he was very brave in making a decision. For example, in 2002, when there were nearly four to 5,000 asylum seekers in Calais, in France, he went there, he visited there, and he agreed with the French authorities to bring all those asylum seekers to the UK. Just imagine if any prime minister now goes to Calais and brings those people to the UK. It was, it was a situation, the country was much more welcoming in terms of welcoming asylum seekers. The system was very good and efficient. And nearly 80 to 85,000 people claimed asylum in 2002, 2003, 2004, which were a significant number of asylum seekers. And the cases were considered uh, promptly. Mine took long. It took one year and nine months before I received my initial decision from the Home Office. That delay was a difficult part for me simply because If I wasn't a very strong person, I could have ended up being completely depressed about the whole thing, believing that my case was strong, believing that I provided compelling evidence in support of my asylum claim, provided detailed account of what happened to me and what will happen to me if I'm returned to Iran. And yet it took a very long time. I was provided uh, accommodation with other asylum seekers and I could see them. came, received an interview within two, three weeks and received a decision within a month or two months later. Some of them were successful. They moved on with their lives. Some of them were rejected. So they had a chance to go through the appeal process. But nothing was happening in my case. And it was very depressing. I wasn't allowed to work for the first year. I couldn't go to university. The tuition fee was very high. But I used that opportunity to learn the English language to make sure that once I received the decision, I could go to university and uh, pursue a career. And during that period, I noticed that many people suffered as a result of misunderstanding of the Home Office and as a result of misunderstanding from the judges. I remember one of my friend's asylum claim was rejected by the Home Office and by the judge. 
he was a member of the party. We went to the party together. He was within the party seven years. I was within the party three years. And then he came to the UK and claimed asylum. His name wasn't Kurdish like mine. His name was Arabic because 95, 96% of the Kurdish population are Muslim. And the judge said, if your family were Kurds, they wouldn't have chosen an Arabic name for you. Well, that's not the case. I, 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 my brother's name, two of them have got Arabic name. They don't have Kurdish name. So it, it is very common. And I, and I saw so many misunderstandings from the judges from the Home Office in terms of dealing with asylum seekers. And more importantly, my solicitor was dealing with my case very efficiently. Anytime I was calling her, she picked up the phone. Anytime I was asking her to contact the Home Office, she was promptly writing a letter to them. And uh, I, I could see that how a solicitor can change lives, change people's lives. And that was the moment I decided to um, become a solicitor and see if I could represent people. So my time, comparing to what people are going through at the moment, uh, is uncomparable. There were funding available for education that I could go to colleges and learn the English language. I never used NHS, but it was available if I needed anything. Um, there were other programs that the government were providing for asylum seekers, for example, like sport programs that I could use it. But at the moment, uh, with the cuts, uh, none of these are available, unfortunately, and, they, and it is very, very difficult. So the Conservative Party has now been in power since 2010, and you, you touched on the Home Office's policies that have changed in this time. What are your views on where the UK could pr improve in terms of its uh, treatment towards refugees, asylum seekers? There are many ways that the Home Office can improve in dealing with the asylum seekers. And uh, I have dealt with four Home Secretaries since I've become a solicitor. Theresa May, Amber Roth, uh, Sajid Javed and Priti Patel. All of them promised compassionate treatment of asylum seekers. And as a solicitor and former refugee, I can tell you that I haven't seen any of that. The system has been designed to fail you on many levels. Unless you are represented, unless you have got a very strong case that to win it at the home office. The hostile environment is one of the difficulties that asylum seekers have got because they can't open a bank account, they can't have a driving license, they can't work. Even if they wait for a year for the decision, then the work they need to take is in short list occupation, which is incredibly difficult to even find a job in those markets. Only less than 1% can do that, and they are doctors or nurses. Otherwise, it is literally impossible to find a job in, in that list that the Home Office has provided. Detention of asylum seekers is another problem, and especially we have an indefinite detention in the UK, which I find it incredibly sad, especially in the UK with a terrific history of dealing with asylum seekers. The delay at the moment in the last two years, three years, even before the pandemic, is the most difficult part for asylum seekers to handle. And I experienced that myself. 
you can't stop thinking about it. Every single minute, every single hour of your life, you are just saying, when are they going to invite me for my asylum interview? When are they going to invite me for my appeal hearing? When are they going to make a decision on my case? And it is deeply regrettable to say that, unfortunately, under the leadership of Priti Patel, the whole system has completely broken down. At the moment, you are incredibly lucky to be invited for your asylum interview after two years or three years. Some of my clients are, have been waiting since 2017, 2018, 2019. When we chase the home office, generic copy-paste letters are coming to us, which are not going to help us at all, which are not going to help the asylum seekers to know what part of their case are going to be considered fairly and reasonably. These are the issues that at the moment we are facing. Of course, there is an issue of the pandemic. Of course, we recognize that the pandemic has uh, affected the operation of the Home Office on many levels. The other difficulties I have with the hostile environment and the leadership of Priti Patel is opening barracks to accommodate asylum seekers. And that, that is shameful on all of us. The issue is simple and straightforward. These people come here. Two possibilities, either they are refugees or they are not. If they are refugees, you deal with their cases promptly, efficiently, and deal with them and grant them so they can move on with their lives. If they are not, you can efficiently, promptly deal with their cases and remove them from the UK. It is simple and straightforward to remove someone to Nigeria, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to uh, different countries that uh, produce asylum seekers. I understand that there are difficulties from dealing with certain countries like North Korea, Eritrea, because they are brutal dictatorship. They will not take back asylum seekers from their own country. And if they do, they will treat them um, terribly. But it is much easier to remove someone to Afghanistan rather than to France because you can consider the asylum claims. There is a good agreement between the UK government and Afghan government in terms of removing asylum seekers to their countries. And if they want to, if someone is not granted asylum in the UK, they can remove that person. But putting them in barracks, keeping them there for years, putting them in detention, taking them through a very unpleasant process, delay in considering their cases, uh, to me, is just unacceptable. And the leadership, the current leadership of the Home Office is just not up to for the job. They are just incompetent on many levels. And they are just coming up with new ideas which are just absurd. For example, after leaving the European Union, the Home Office introduced a uh, a policy uh, which became an immigration rule saying that anyone who comes to the UK through a safe country, for example, France, uh, we will not consider the asylum claims in the UK. It would be inadmissible. Well, that's wrong on many levels. First, you have left the European Union. You can't return anyone to European Union. 
uh, end of the issue. No European country will go into an agreement with the UK to accept asylum seekers coming back, uh, return from UK to those countries. Secondly, no decision can be made on their cases because they will be left on limbo for how long? A year, two, three. And then the Home Office will have to deal with them, will have to consider them. This is creating a backlog, more asylum seekers waiting with. And it is costly for, for the taxpayers because the Home Office need to accommodate them and provide them with financial support. They are entitled to NHS, they are entitled to education, they are entitled to legal representative. So the Home Office is saying we are not going to deal with your cases. It is just increasing the bill for the taxpayers. That's a really bad policy to have, which is a breach of international law, which is a, a breach of human rights law, a breach of all, all commitment that the UK has promised to the refugees in the past. As I said, UK has got a proud history of welcoming refugees in during the First World War, during the Second World War. Uh, bearing in mind the refugees have always made the country stronger as well as better. I know so many refugees who have worked shoulder to shoulder during the pandemic with their fellow British citizen uh, in the NHS. I've, I've known many successful refugees who have worked in different department of the governments and the current vaccine minister Nadim Zahawi is a son of a former refugee who fled Saddam Hussein's regime. So you can see that refugees have made the country better. So these are the issues that I find difficult at the moment with the Home Office and the current leadership of the Home Office. And I can't emphasize enough to say how disappointed I am with Priti Patel because she promised compassion after the Windrush scandal. And not only she's not a compassionate person, she literally is leading the war against refugees and asylum seekers in the most unpleasant and horrible way. And that is really worrying. So you were named the Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year for 2017 by the Law Society. Tell me a little bit about your experience working with people seeking asylum in the UK today. It's an absolute privilege to be able to represent some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. It's not only in our society. It is not only in London or my place of leave, Wimbledon or the UK. Asylum seekers are, and refugees are the most vulnerable people on the planet. We have seen so many crises. Look at the situation in Syria. Look at what has happened to those asylum seekers and refugees that they were forced to flood uh, their country. One side, one dictatorship, another side, uh, a brutal terrorist organization. Assisting them, helping them, representing them, and trying to be their legal representative, their counselors, their friends. Some of them even don't have anyone to talk to. So they find you the only person who can pick up the phone and call and discuss little issues or little chat. Uh, I remember one of my clients was hit by a car and ended up in a care home, very young and unfortunately completely paralyzed and could just speak, needed 24-7 care. 
every Monday, I was calling him to speak to him about Premier League and uh, football, and he was watching Manchester United. He supported Manchester United because he had absolutely no one else to talk to. And anytime if I was busy on a Monday and I couldn't call, it was like the whole world has fallen for him. He was calling on Tuesday. He was complaining that I didn't call and he was he wanted to tell me how good the game was, how the players played well and so on. So it's a privilege to represent them. And of course, during the process, you come across some of the most successful people. You come up, uh, you represent a doctor from Syria, you come, you represent a presidential can, uh, candidate from an African country, you represent a high profile journalist, you represent uh, high profile lawyers who face persecution in their countries, and you start looking at their cases and represent them for a variety of issues. For example, I've had a high profile lawyer who was gay from Iran and he managed to hide it for many years but then they found out and he had to flee the country. Uh, These are things that uh, makes me wake up every morning and go to work very happy to say that actually my work is making a difference on people's life. Yes, a few of them comparing to the country's population, comparing to number of people coming to the UK and claiming asylum. But even changing one life in our profession is extremely important. So they can get their refugee status, they can move on with their lives. And some of them at later stage, they call me and they ask for advice in terms of what they should study, which universities they should choose, what career path they should take. And um, I've, I've seen some of my clients who studied law and then I, I let them come back and have some work experience with myself as well so they can go into the profession after doing their LPCO bar course. It, it's a privilege to see their development. It's a privilege to see uh, that you have assisted them to change their lives. It is a privilege to see them that they are doing incredibly well and they are very successful and they are com- they are helping the society in any way they can. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to hear about your, your personal experience and your legal experience. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE. 